It's frankly very discouraging for me when I start talking about the necessity of joy in the Christian life, and of course specifically in our vocation as Catholic wives, and I encounter women who are offended by this call to joy. It's baffling to me. Why would you not want to be more joyful? Aside from the attitude that I've been coming up against that joy is a luxury to possess, some women object very directly to my claim that joy is a necessity to the Christian life. And those objections can be summed up into three general statements. The first amounts to, you don't know my situation. Uh, The second, joy won't help my situation. And the third, We're called to be faithful, not happy. This last one is a direct quote, by the way, but there were many agreeing with the individual who made the statement, and so I assume that this is not an isolated objection. I would like to treat these objections in reverse. So, we're called to be faithful, not happy. Out of context, if you heard this statement made, I think we can all see the merit in making such a statement. Because if we are talking about that worldly happiness which is fleeting, and for which so many are willing to sell their immortal souls, then absolutely, yes, we are called to be faithful. We are not called to pursue fleeting worldly happiness. However, when this objection is put forward as it was, in the context of a conversation regarding the necessity of joy in the Christian life, and especially in our vocation as authentic Catholic wives, I hope that with everything we covered in last week's episode, it's clear that this objection just falls completely flat. If you replace the word happy with the word joyful, then it ought to become immediately apparent that this is not a train of thought which is coming from God. If joy is an indicator of God's grace, an indicator of Christ's life within us, as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI explained, then faithfulness demands joy and also breeds it. If you are doing something which you are calling faithfulness, and yet you are devoid of joy, and we talked last week about five signs or examples of joylessness, then that should be a serious red flag. Whatever good work we think we are doing, if done joylessly, is not being done faithfully. If you are truly being faithful, then you will absolutely be joy-filled. I believe that a thought like this, um, this we're called to be faithful, not happy thought, stems and or feeds into a misplaced, shall we call it, martyrdom complex. Some are called to bear the cross of an unhappy marriage. However, too often what I see is a deliberate use of unhappiness to punish a husband for behavior which the woman finds offensive. 
And I say this from having done it myself. I deeply resented my husband's faults and I took it upon myself to punish him for drinking and for using pornography by refusing to be happy with my life. I think the train of thought among women who have been in a similar position to myself is that if they are happy, if they are joyful, the message that this will send to their husbands is that his behavior is acceptable and requires no modification. And I get it. These are serious transgressions against the marriage vow, pornography and alcohol abuse, etc. But as we discussed at length in episode 4, My spouse's sins do not justify my own sins. To choose deliberately to persist in being unhappy and ungrateful with the intention of hurting another person by making our misery so visible is indeed an objective sin of unforgiveness, among other things. I do wonder if this objection, we're called to be faithful, not happy, comes from maybe not knowing how to distinguish between joy and happiness, maybe due to never having experienced true joy. And I acknowledge that it's, it's difficult to describe. It's not really scientifically measurable. And the experience of joy is not something that can be taught. We can be taught and we can train to reach for it, but to know what it is, to be able to identify it, cannot be taught. So all I can offer and all any person who has experienced authentic joy can offer is personal testimony. The credibility of such personal testimonies is evident in the consistencies and similarities found across the board, and that is what we find in the testimonies and exhortations to joy from the saints and sacred scripture. Joy is something that is deep-seated in comparison to happiness, which is easily identified as fleeting. The words of the psalmist, my cup overflows, is exactly what joy feels like in my experience. It is this sense of bubbling over with delight in the Lord and in his gifts and his promises. And in the context of marriage, my experience is that it manifests in spouses as a constant readiness to forgive, an unreserved willingness to serve, an unfailing recourse to gratitude, um, and, and just a deliberate presence to each other. So what that looks like uh, in a practical situation might be something like this. I'm mostly a stay-at-home mom. I also work from home, but only about five hours a week, and not because my husband specifically wants or needs me to. He supports me doing something that I love, and at the same time, he has not hesitated to tell me when it seems that my focus is wrong. When we were first married, I was working... 20 to 30 hours a week and he was very direct with me that something needed to change reminding me that my primary responsibility was to our family at any rate we have toddlers and i'm pregnant now and i get worn out um when i'm 
<laughs> when I'm only happy versus joyful, I get annoyed very easily. I can go from patient and smiling to snappy and barking <laughs> in the blink of an eye. So when my husband comes home from work and I'm in this joyless state, even if I'm happy uh, because, you know, I've been having a relatively good day with the kids, if he says that he needs a nap, I get annoyed. <laughs> and the entire time that he's napping, I'm, I'm sharp and impatient with the kids and feeling grumbly because I feel like I've been waiting for a chance to be relieved of toddler duty all day. <laughs> but if I am joyful, a very different thing happens. It isn't that I'm suddenly not tired, but I handle that tiredness with reason and with dignity. I'm able to remember that I am grateful that I am no longer working a full-time office job and that I have a husband who is willing to do that, who does not mind me being thoroughly dependent on him and who is incredibly generous with me and his children. I'm able to sigh and smile and remind myself that my husband has more than earned his nap, that it is my little way of showing how much I love and appreciate him by encouraging him to rest. And that really, in the grand scheme of things, he doesn't do it often. There are weeks when he will take the kids out to the park every single day as soon as he gets home from work. When I'm joyful, I'm able to cut myself some slack and lie down somewhere in the playroom and let myself close my eyes and tell the toddlers simply, you know, mommy's tired. And they're very loving about it. They want to talk about it to process. You know how toddlers are. They're like, mommy tired? Mommy sleepy? Mommy lying down? Oh. And then they want to snuggle and sometimes climb all over me. And it's not particularly comfortable, especially when pregnant. And I have to be on, you know, high alert to make sure that they're not about to climb on their sister and womb. <laughs> but the prevailing thought in my mind is that I am grateful that I have such loving, cuddly children and how lucky their little sister will be to have such attentive big siblings. My attitude when I'm joy-filled, my thought processes, my visible, tangible, audible response to a situation which my only happy self would find difficult is completely different. And finally, before we move on to the second objection, you know, ladies, if you make your happiness dependent on your spouse, you're idolizing him. Everything that you have which is good comes from God. And there are people whom God has chosen to communicate his gifts to you, but he can do away with any of those people at any moment. When you decide that your happiness depends on your husband behaving in a certain manner, you're putting him on a pedestal above God. You are saying that how you receive God's gifts through certain people matters more than the gifts themselves, which are from God and God alone. It should not have to be said that you owe God everything, <laughs> regardless of how your husband is acting. Which means you continue to owe God gratitude and fidelity no matter what your situation in life. Your husband is not the center of your happiness. 
You make an idol of him when you insist that he must be. Moving on to the second objection, joy won't help my situation. No, joy won't help your situation because grace, which breeds and is indicated by joy, doesn't help situations. Grace helps individuals gracefully navigate and or endure difficult situations and also preserve wonderful situations. So if you are in a difficult situation and you're expecting your situation to change as a result of reaching for grace and reaching for joy, if what you desire in praying for and reaching for God's grace is for other people to change and for your miserable circumstances to magically right themselves, then your focus is frankly on the wrong part of the equation. Praying and reaching for God's grace is no guarantee that anything about your life will change. But it is a guarantee that you will change in how you view those circumstances and respond to them. And any change made with God's grace will always be for the better. And finally, the objection, you don't know my situation. No, I don't. But I do know that whatever your situation is, blissful or miserable, you need God's grace to live well in that situation. Ladies, joy is the consistent mark of a Christian within whom Christ's life abounds. How sad is it then that there are Christian households where women consider joy to be a luxury rather than a necessity? Where there is this attitude that if there's joy, great. And if there isn't, oh well, we don't have time to bother about its absence. We don't have time to remedy the reign of joylessness. Instead of identifying joylessness and absence of humor as the definitive absence of Christ, I see women buying into this very cleverly positioned lie of the devil that joy is a luxury. And I say cleverly positioned because of this, I don't know what to call it, an idea uh, maybe that I'm seeing that women suppose burnout to be a badge of some sort. That if you are a wife, a homemaker who is mostly joyful, mostly joy filled, that you must not be having to do very much, <laughs> or that you are probably naive and neglectful and ultimately failing in your duties as a wife and maybe even as a mother because you somehow have time to bask in joy. And if we're really being honest and calling it like it is, I think that's a symptom of jealousy. We have to address this because to think of burnout as a badge is to call joylessness an accomplishment. And it is not an accomplishment to allow the Spirit of Christ to become absent from your marriage and your home. Quite the opposite. Joylessness in a Christian indicates not only the absence of grace, but ultimately a lack of discipline 
on the part of the individual. That's the hard truth. If God's grace is always available to reach for at any time, and if joy is an unfailing indicator of grace and abundance, then joylessness indicates a lack of discipline in reaching for joy and responding to God's grace. And this is exactly why we're spending this time talking about grace and by extension joy. So let's really quick review what we've covered in the past month and a half and how we've gotten here to talking about reaching for joy. In episode one, we established that our marriage vows prohibit us from treating the salvation of our spouse with apathy or indifference. In episode two, we considered the role of the wife designated by God to be the helpmate of her husband towards heaven and how the help she offers her to her spouse must be modeled on that help which is offered by God. That is not manipulative or coercive, but respectful of her husband's free will and operating through authentic inspiration, through inspiring her spouse to a life of holiness by striving to make holiness attractive and desirable to him. In episode three, we expounded on this responsibility to make a life of holiness attractive to our husband by examining the impact that a wife's sin has on her husband, either through direct involvement as an accessory to her husband's sin, or through that unity which is experienced by all members of the body of Christ, but but then uh, compounded with the unity of spouses in and through the sacrament of marriage as one flesh. In episode four, we addressed some common deflections which arise in an attempt to downplay or disregard the impact which our sins have on our spouse. We zoned in on Christ's commands that a wife ought to be obedient to and respectful of her husband at all times, even when he is wrong, with the exception, of course, made with regards to any legitimate authority, which is that no authority may order us to sin. And then last week in episode five, we started talking about grace. And I hope this didn't seem to be an abrupt jump to a new train of thought, given that in the first four episodes, we promised to continue to expand on many things, such as what wifely respect actually looks like and what one can and ought to do when a husband is objectively failing in any given area, remembering at all times, of course, that even objectively good ends never justify sinful means on our part. The reason we have moved on to talking about grace, if it's not clear, is because we need to establish that grace is a necessity, that God's grace is needed to accomplish anything good. And so we went on to examine a particular indicator of grace, that is, joy. Through sacred scripture and the testimonies of saints, we establish that joy is the mark of a faithful Christian, and that joy and grace are inseparable. You know, most of my experiences in the confessional are not (laughs) particularly memorable. Um, But there are a few that stand out, and in one of those, um, my confessor told me 
that the best thing that I could possibly do in the face of temptation was to laugh. He said, to laugh because the devil hates laughter and that if I laughed, even in a very forced way, I would become focused on the absurdity of laughing and then I would laugh at myself even more and thus be able to see the temptation for what it was. Honestly, I was finding it difficult not to laugh in the confessional. But this priest was emphasizing for me what a great weapon laughter and joy are. We talk about these various weapons that we have in our arsenal in this spiritual warfare. The rosary, for example, is deliberately hung on the side where a soldier would have hung his sword in its scabbard. Once when I was speaking of joy as an essential weapon, a wife asked, why does everything have to be a battle? And I confess, I didn't take the time to answer the question as thoroughly or as patiently as I should have. So I, I want to take the time to respond carefully now. It is alarming how many self-proclaimed Catholics do not actually believe in hell or in the existence of devils and demons. And yet, I think it's even more alarming that many self-proclaimed Catholics have bought into the lie that a loving God will not damn anyone to hell. And there's so many layers of misunderstanding here, not the least of which is a thoroughly warped idea of what love is. Last week we read from the Catechism, uh, this was number 2002, which in part stated, quote, the soul only enters freely into the communion of love, end quote. If it isn't given freely, it isn't love. And God has given us this astounding, mind-boggling freedom to choose heaven or to choose hell. And this is what I think is essential for the Christian to understand. God does not damn people to hell. Everyone who is in hell has freely chosen to spend their life on earth walking towards its gates, even running. The individual in hell has demonstrated in the course of their life a complete rejection of God to the point where entering into God's presence in heaven would bring them no joy. They are no longer disposed to receive heaven's bliss. Hell is a, a demonstration of God's uncompromising respect for that free will with which he gifted man and therefore of his love. Is it not just is it not respectful? Is it not loving to honor a man's decisions? Is it not just respectful and loving to guarantee without exception that there will be no coercion, no compulsion, no enforcement of a certain eternal state of being 
upon those who have spent their earthly life sneering at it. Those who do not desire heaven will not be forced to enter. Those who find God and his commandments distasteful will not be forced to spend eternity singing his praises. Those who have found it entertaining and even fulfilling to witness and to further the misery of others will not then be forced to spend eternity rejoicing in others' relief. Those who have been pleased to wallow in sin and lead others into it will not then be forced to delight in the perfection, the cleanliness, the spotlessness of the redeemed and glory of the salvation of souls. And the thing is, that is what is at stake, the salvation of souls. Why does everything have to be a battle? Because nothing less than eternity is at stake. There's this beautiful quote from St. Therese of Lisieux, whom we know well as the proponent of the little way. She says, quote, you cannot be half a saint. You must be a whole saint or no saint at all. End quote. The saint is not the one who does the bare minimum. The bare minimum is the individual who is concerned only with avoiding mortal sins, but not venial ones. The saint is the one who does not excuse even the slightest tendency to the smallest of venial sins. The truth is that each and every one of us is born into a war zone, and even if we do not take our own salvation seriously, angels and demons and God and the devil do not sleep. For when Christ says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, it's not because following him discharges us from the battlefield. Rather, that he has gone before us in this fight. And that the more perfectly that we match his steps, the easier our own path to heaven will be. The slightest deviation, the smallest toe out of line, causes us so much grief and suffering. And so when St. Therese says that little things should be done with great love and that no thing is too small to offer him, it means every dish you wash and every sock you pick up and every diaper that you change. And we only hurt ourselves when we think that Casting a fleeting, dirty look at our husband's back will not set us back by very much. If God can work through these littlest things, which we offer to him with love and joy, then we must realize that the devil also works in little ways, and that precisely because he does, our vigilance is needed everywhere. One day that husband will turn suddenly and catch that glare, and it will pierce his heart. Just a little splinter of ice, but it will grow if the wife in their pride does absolutely nothing to strive to melt it. Ladies, has sainthood really become so distasteful to you that in a call to joy you hear only criticism and your heart flames not with love but with indignation 
how could you possibly find the idea of living a more joyful life to be dispiriting, even hateful? That a discipline of joy is needed by each of us should be so uplifting. That God should make something that feels so good to share and that is so wonderful to possess one of the sharpest arrows in our quiver, that he makes our willingness and our passion to delight in his gifts a sign of growing and deepening holiness. What a sad, sad world it is that prefers to be miserable when joy can be had. Next week, we'll start laying out a practical plan for developing a discipline of joy. In the meantime, I invite you to dig deep and consider if you have a tendency or even a strong preference for wallowing in misery and self-pity, first ask yourself why, and then ask yourself if you're ready to let God change you. I want to share one last quote. This is from Alice von Hildebrand. Quote, Marriage calls each spouse to fight against himself for the sake of the beloved. This is why it has become so unpopular today. People are no longer willing to achieve the greatest of all victories, the victory over self. End quote. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.